Good morning. Today's teaching text comes from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 641 in your Shed Bibles. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Infants will play near the hole of the cobra. Young children will put their hands into the viper's nests. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my, my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Kyle Lake, serve as one of the pastors here, serve our high school students and our young adults and our families, and it is good to be with you all this morning. We are in the second Sunday of Advent, and Advent is much like the Costco shopping cart corral speed bump. Have you seen these things? Surely, if you have gone to Costco, you have engaged one of these massive speed bumps they have at the entrance to the cart corral. Their point is to keep the carts in. However, they also keep the carts out. Because if you have tried to push your cart over that with any sort of speed or intensity, it will dislocate your shoulder. <laughs> An advent... Unlike our surrounding cultural Christmas season, which is filled with a flurry of activity and chaos, Advent, standing at the head of the church calendar, the church new year, invites us to stop, to pause, and to wait. This waiting is not a passive waiting. It's a waiting that is filled and tempered with trust and hope. Trust and hope that what seems completely unlikely will happen. And in our text today, 
The people that are receiving these words, the people of Judah, are themselves in a season of Advent. A season of waiting. A season where they are invited to trust and hope. And as we were reading this text this week, I began to think and to wonder alongside the people of Judah. And maybe you did as well. How? How does this happen? How does what the prophet Isaiah proclaim come to fruition? How can this be possible? How can the Spirit of the Lord come to rest on someone? How can the Spirit of the Lord rest on a person that rises up from the ashes, that comes up from a stump that seems completely forsaken? How can someone come and rule not with what they hear or see, but with justice and righteousness? How does this happen? How does what seems completely incomprehensible, what seems impossible, become possible? How does the wolf lie down with the lamb? How does the lion turn from its ways? How does a young child play around the viper's nest without anxiety or fear? What kind of fairy tale is this? How does this happen? And I can't imagine that it takes too much work for us to think about the wolves in our own lives and in our own world. Wolves that prey on the vulnerable and the weak, the young and the elderly. How do those two move to a place where they live together with peace and harmony and mutuality and honor? Or the lions in our lives that devour our friends and family with illness and disease and famine? How does that lion turn from its ways? Or how does the viper's nest of inflation or climate change or racism or the myriad of injustices that occupy our worlds be tamed? How does this happen? And if you find yourself wondering those things as I have this week, then know yet that you are in the company of the people to whom these words came. You are in good company with the people of Judah, for all is not well in the land. It has been quite a few years since the people of Israel were a united kingdom. By this time, when the words of Isaiah come to the people of Judah, the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah have split. And the northern kingdom of Israel has teamed up with its neighbor to the north, Aram. And they have laid siege to Jerusalem. 
And in an act of self-preservation, Judah reaches out to one of the new superpowers on the scene, the Assyrians, to come and to rescue them. They can't wait for someone to intervene. And so they call on the Assyrians to come and to save them and to free them. But it comes at a cost. For they need to now pay tribute to the Assyrians year after year in a way that cripples their economy and makes the vulnerable even more vulnerable. And eventually the Assyrians would lay siege to Jerusalem as well. But as much as things are chaotic and eroding outside of the city walls, things aren't great inside them either. Injustice is rampant. The poor are being deprived of their rights. The vulnerable are being taken advantage of. And it seems like the monarchy is crumbling. The people are waiting for something to intervene. They are in a season of Advent. And it's in the midst of that, in the midst of what seems like a complete impossibility that these words from the prophet Isaiah speak to Judah. And so we hear at the end of chapter 10, right before the words that Allison read for us, Behold, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the bows with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. We hear this hopeful vision. Behold, a Costco speed bump of a word, one that invites us to attentiveness, One that speaks of a shift, of an intervention, something changing in the scene. Behold, something is about to take place. And unless we have our ears properly tuned as our audience here in uh, Judah, we may miss the subtlety of what is taking place from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Perhaps we think of one of the famous Jesses in our own world, Jesse Jackson. Or maybe we think about Jesse Minter, the famous or perhaps infamous defensive coordinator for the University of Michigan, depending on what team you cheer for. Jesse McCartney, actor, singer. Is the prophet speaking of any of these Jesses? Behold, he is not. 
And so who? Who is this Jesse to which the prophet speaks? Who is this one on whom the spirit of the Lord will rest? Well, to understand that, we need to go back in the story. All the way to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Here in chapter 15, we have God coming to Abram to make a promise, to make a covenant with him. A few chapters earlier in Genesis, God has come to Abram and said, leave your home, leave your people, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will turn you into a great nation. You will have many descendants. They will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. And so Abram left. And now he's waiting. He is in a season of Advent, waiting for God to fulfill God's promise to him. And it hasn't come to pass yet. And Abram and God are having a conversation. And so the Lord says to him, bring me a cow and a ram and a dove and a pigeon. And let's have a covenant ceremony. Cut these things in half. And we are going to have a ceremony. And that is where this story picks up in chapter 15. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be stranger in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And then the story continues. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And it would be years later that this promise that God gave to Abram would come to pass. That the people of Israel would travel down into Egypt and would become a numerous and great people. So much so that they would be enslaved for 400 years waiting in their own season of Advent for God to intervene, waiting for their own behold, waiting for God to enter in and to save them. And God would and would bring them out to Mount Sinai where God would meet with them. And God would create another covenant with them, that they were to be God's people and God was to be their God. And so the story continues that they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years and came to the edge of this land that God had promised to Abram. 
that now they were to enter into and receive as a fulfillment of that covenant, of that promise. And as they are about to enter into that land, the covenant is renewed once again. And this is taken up in the book of Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is in some ways a reenacting of this covenant. That you are to be my people and I am to be your God. That I will be faithful to you as your God. And you are invited and called to love me with all of your heart and with all of your being and with all of your might. And when you do this, things will go well. You will be the people that I've called you to be in the world. But when you don't do this, things will not go well. And there will be judgment. And yet, I will continue to be faithful to this promise. And so the people enter into the land. And they're ruled by a collection of tribal leaders, of judges for a while, and then they want a king. And their first king goes, okay, but not great. And this king turns from the Lord. And so God raises up for them another king. And this is where the story again picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This king is one from the outskirts of Bethlehem. A little shepherd boy by the name of David, whose father is Jesse. And to him, this promise comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And so suddenly things begin to click into place for us as we read this prophecy from Isaiah in the background of this story, of this stump. Because this stump, The stump of Jesse matters because it tells a particular story, a story of God's faithfulness and God's promise to a people over and over again who are waiting for God to intervene in their lives. And it's this story, the story of this stump, the stump of Jesse, that Matthew picks up in his gospel, as he begins to make sense of who this anointed king is, who the one in whom the spirit of the Lord rests upon. And so Matthew writes this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, And then further on, and Jesse, the father of King David, 
and further on, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That this story that began long ago, that weaves through the lives of the people of Judah, that seems to now just be a dead stump, from that stump, there is another story that is growing. One that the people cannot believe or imagine because it is a good and amazing and beautiful story that comes to fruition in another person. One who also comes from the outskirts of Bethlehem. One whose father is Jesse as well. Jesus, the Messiah. And so at the beginning of the Christian year, the beginning of Advent, we proclaim as a church that the Spirit of the Lord has come to rest on one, one who does rule with justice and righteousness, one who does judge not by what he sees or what he hears, one whose kingdom is one of peace. And this one is Jesus. And when this one, this king is enthroned, what seems completely impossible becomes possible. What, be, what seems incomprehensible is known. That what is lost is found. What was broken is fixed. What is dead is alive again. Because this king brings a kingdom of life and abundance and peace and joy and goodness. Because the spirit of the Lord rests upon this king. The same spirit that hovered over the surface of the waters. That brought beauty and order out of chaos. The same spirit that whispered into the darkness of Saturday to bring forth the resurrection of Sunday. The same spirit to which Paul says is alive in you. And yet this spirit is like the wind. We don't know from where it is coming or where it is blowing. And so all we can do is wait. It is Advent. And so we wait. But waiting is uncomfortable. How many of us like waiting? How many of us have found ourselves saying, let's hurry up and get there quickly so we can wait? Many of us, like myself, overpack our schedules so we can avoid waiting. I am notorious in my family for trying to squeeze a one-hour run into a 40-minute time block because I don't want to wait. Waiting is uncomfortable. As the theologian Andrew Root points out, waiting seems wasteful to our lives. 
And so it leaves a distasteful, uh, it leaves a, a poor taste in our mouths. It's against our modern sensibilities. Waiting feels wasteful. And so we avoid it at all costs. And we in the church are guilty of this as well. Waiting can feel apathetic. Aren't we supposed to be doing things? Aren't we supposed to be out there changing the world? Aren't we supposed to be out there bringing hope and change? But in Advent, we wait. Here's what Andy Root has to say. He says, waiting is dynamic when it comes to seeking a God who is God. Because this kind of waiting is attentiveness. When the church attentively waits with and for the world, it seeks a God who is God by loving the world and praying for the world. To wait is to be alive. In waiting, we find life. And so in Advent, we wait with the world for God to act once again in our lives. We wait with those who are getting chemo in the hospital room, in the outpatient clinic. We wait with the high school senior who's wrestling with the uncertainty of what is next. We wait with the middle schooler who just wants to belong. We wait with the person in the middle of their career finds themselves wondering if they're called to do and be something else in this world. We wait with those who mourn to whom the taste of death is still clinging to their mouth. We wait, and in our waiting we pray, and in our praying we trust and hope that there is a king who is enthroned, a king who does bring peace, a king who shall say all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. And so in Advent, we wait. And so perhaps for us as a church, one of the appropriate practices for this Advent season is the practice of Sabbath, a practice that invites us weekly to wait on God and to wait with God and to wait with the world. A weekly reminder that before we were called into any sort of action, God said, wait, rest with me. And this table is a picture of that waiting. We come to this table every week because we are a people who wait. Who wait for the feast of the crucified and risen king that will come into our world once again. 
a table which will bring people from many tribes and many nations who speak many different languages and will come together in what seems completely impossible, eating, feasting, and being at peace with one another. And so we come to this table because we wait. But we wait with trust and hope that God indeed makes all things new. And so to this table, let us come. And so I say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so we pray. Holy and right it is and our joyful duty to give thanks to you, O Lord our God, almighty and everlasting creator. For you created the heavens with all of their splendor and the earth with the bounty of its goodness. And you created human beings to care and tend to your earth, to be your image bearers. And you have loved us and cared for us and preserved us by your love. And yet you have also demonstrated and revealed the fullness of your love in sending your son Jesus Christ to be the one who reconciles us and the whole world to you. And so we join our voices with angels and archangels in the company of heavenly hosts in singing and blessing your glorious name, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so send your Holy Spirit, we pray. The bread that we break and the cup that we bless would be to us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. And that just as grapes from many vines have been gathered into this cup and grains from many hills into this bread, may you gather your church as one into your kingdom. And so come, Lord Jesus, upon you we wait. And so we continue the story that was passed on to us. A story that is written throughout the pages of Scripture to which Paul speaks of, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they had filled themselves with their dinner, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It is the promised fulfillment that a branch has risen up from the stump of Jesse. Come, drink, do this in remembrance of me.
And so whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And indeed, we proclaim that story with the church here and around the world by speaking these words, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so come. There are uh, elements at all the tables. They're gluten and allergen-free. There's cups. And if you'd like someone to pray with you, uh, Brian is in the back there. He would love to pray with you. Or you can write one of prayers and put it in prayer wall, and our staff will pray for you this week. But come. Come all you who are waiting. Come all you who are thirsty. Come all you who are hungry. However you come. Come not because we ought to come or that we should come, but that we may come. Come. All things are ready.